Hello, you're listening to Dead Pilot Society, the podcast in which pilots that were bought and developed but never produced are given the table reads they so richly deserve. This is Ben Blacker, the co-host and producer of Dead Pilot Society, sitting in for Andrew Reich. Uh, you'll hear Andrew in a minute in this conversation with Paul Shear and Andrew Guest, whose pilot, Voice of the People, we released earlier this month. If you haven't listened to Voice of the People, go check it out now. It's a terrific script with a crazy cast that includes Sashir Zamata, uh, Mark Evan Jackson, Nicole Byer, Kate Mulgrew, Vela Lavelle, John Hodgman, Gary Anthony Williams, Jamie Moyer, Eugene Cordero. It's just, it's a terrific uh, all-star cast as usual. So definitely go check that out and then come back and listen to this chat that Andrew Reich had with the show's writers, Paul Shear and Andrew Guest. Paul Shear, of course, uh, you know from all kinds of things uh, on screen, including, but certainly not limited to, Black Monday, uh, you've heard his voice on Big Mouth and Star Trek Lower Decks recently. Um, and that's just recently. I mean, Veep, The Good Place, all kinds of stuff. But Paul is also a terrific writer in his own right and um, has worked on all kinds of shows, including The League. Uh, and he created a show called Filthy Preppy Teens that is worth checking out. It's a lot of fun. His co-writer on this, Andrew Guest, you've seen his name on... All the comedies you love, including Brockmire, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Marry Me, Suburgatory Community. Um, he also did an episode of The Twilight Zone, which was really great. Um, and the chat that Andrew has with Paul and Andrew is both fascinating and enlightening. I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we're the hosts of Round Springfield. Round Springfield is a Simpsons-adjacent podcast where we talk to Simpsons folks about non-Simpsons things. That's right. So in the past, we've gotten to talk to legendary showrunners and writers like Al Jean, Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein, Dana Gould, Mike Reese, and David X. Cohen. Voice actors like Maurice LaMarche, Maggie Roswell, and Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson herself. Hell yeah. <laughs> so we've been away securing guests for our final five episodes. We won't tell you everybody, but we'll let you know that the last episode is kind of a big deal. We got Matt Groening. <gasps> Homer's dad. We got Homer's dad. Check out new episodes of Round Springfield starting June 21st. On Maximum of Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Smell you later. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. We talked a little bit you know, before, but I, I want to know how this team up happened. You know, it's interesting from my point of view, and I'm curious how Andrew came to it as well. Like, I think one of the things I'm always looking for as a writer is a collaborator. You know, I always thrive in that, uh, in that venue. I like getting in and, and I, I don't have like a total want or desire to be the only person on something. So I had this idea that I was kind of circling that I had talked to, uh, the guys at Gary Sanchez about that they got really excited about. And my agent, when I told him the idea, I was like, you know, you should talk to Andrew. Uh, he has a similar kind of thing that he's been working with. And I think you guys would really like each other. And it's been something that for me, I'm always wanting that for my agents. I'm like, you represent all these people. Do you ever want to maybe try to make relationships, you know? like, And so that's how I, I think our first meeting kind of came to be, right? I mean, or is that how you remember it, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I had... So I knew somebody um, who was a friend of a friend who'd been a pundit. And I was sort of interested in this world of like cable news. And we were trying to figure out what our show was. And again, this was sort of at a point where I was talking to my agents about trying to make this a pitch. And they were like, you know what? Um, Paul Shear is working on something similar at Gary Sanchez. Why don't you meet him? and talk to him and see what they're doing. Cause I think they might be looking for somebody to help out on it. Yeah. And then we, we met and, you know, my idea was, uh, had some idea, like I basically really was obsessed with this idea of, you know, this punditry, like this whole, like we are living in this world where, you know, you watch these people day after day come on and they seem that they're so versed in everything. And I felt like, Oh, that's such a fun world because it almost feels like they live there. It feels like it has elements of things I love about 30 rock and, 
you know, just a, a fun, different workplace. And then when I talked to Andrew and Andrew kind of had a lot more knowledge about like the actual punditry of it. We really, I think, just kind of gelled these ideas together and, and started really, I think took a while to kind of even find like how we wanted to approach it. Cause it was like, it was, you know, there were so many different ways we could go in on it. And we, I think we're just, we really spent some time just discussing what the best way in was and who, you know, whose eyes should the show be told through and stuff like that. And it was interesting to me as somebody who'd been working in TV for many years and was sort of understood the process of like selling a show or what, what, what went on behind the scenes to make something happen. I was still felt very naive when it came to cable news. Like I would watch Sunday shows, round tables, and like be sitting there hoping that somebody would make the point that convinced somebody else of something like you're desperate because right. you care passionately about these topics. And you're like, Oh my God, if only somebody could point out to Bill O'Reilly, what a fucking idiot he is and make him look like an asshole, things could change, you know? And then you realize when you talk to the people who actually work in this industry, it is just as fake and sort of silly as our industry. Yeah. It's, it's wrestling. I mean, everyone's playing a part. I, I think the thing that maybe like even spurned the idea in my mind was one night I was a guest on a CNN entertainment news show. I think it was like a Joy Behar show. And I was in the dressing room, which was shared by Anderson Cooper and like Don Lemon was in there. And uh, we all were in the same makeup. There was one makeup room and it was this like central area. And you just got the sense that this was, it was just, uh, it had this energy of, it was entertainment. Like everyone's friends off air. There was a, there was a vibe to it. It was sort of like, okay, we're in the locker room now and we're going out there. And when I saw that, that really was what was comedically interesting to me. It was like, oh, right. This is not even with like Andrew and I could be on the same lot on two different shows, but that's different trailers. We don't take breaks at the same time. We don't ever cross paths, but here they're in the same green room, the same makeup room. And we're talking like Anderson Cooper. He is the face of CNN. Like, you know, and he is, you know, so there's no, I thought that was really interesting. And, and that idea of, oh, right. They're kind of, their job is to create interesting TV, get the ratings up, get the clips. Cause even when Bill O'Reilly is like schooled by that kid who comes on and like tells him, no, Bill, actually your facts are wrong, wrong, wrong. He loves it. Cause it's a rate, it's a ratings thing. It's like that will go viral and that will be a thing. Like, it's about those clips, I think. And that's what was really interesting. Yeah. Like finding that out. Yeah. It's interesting. You both had these little moments cause Andrew, you took, you know, just learning that, that they're just Googling these things right before you go on. And then for you, Paul, that it's a seeing like whatever Van Jones and Rick Santorum are just like, they're hanging out and then they're not fighting off air. They're like buddies and they go on and they play their parts. And, um, that, 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 that you each had that sort of spark that got you interested in this as a world. And then, so yeah, so how do you land on, on Lucy, this, you know, this sort of outsider who's not from, I mean, was there ever a point where you thought your way in was going to be, you know, someone who's really established in this world? Yeah. It took a while to find Lucy. Right. I mean, originally I had sort of conceived it from the opposite end where I had like, do we start with like a sportscaster who winds up doing some political thing because nobody else was able to do it? And he winds up, you know, being successful and the, you know, the producers and execs love him, even though he doesn't know anything about politics. But I think Paul had already sort of figured out that he wanted to have somebody you kind of root for that you that is represents that that feeling of caring about these topics, who is really passionate about journalism and wanting to make the world a better place or change people's minds about things with real information and like how crazy and can that person survive? Yeah. I think there's something so engaging about this idea, like this absolute power or celebrity can kind of crush the thing that makes you unique and different and interesting. Cause you can get fed into a machine as that person who's unique, different and interesting. And then that becomes, well, that's now your thing. You are that thing and you have to embrace that. I've always been obsessed you know, I'm a big Howard Stern listener. And back when Glenn Beck was, you know, very popular, you know, Howard would always be playing these like morning drive time clips of Glenn Beck before he became Glenn Beck. And it's like, oh, you realize like he's a chameleon. He wasn't always this guy. He was trying to be this and he became that. And, and, you know, with the, with the death of all these magazines and papers, and I think, you know, Andrew and I were both like circling that, like the idea, like, 
where do good journalists go now? It's like, oh, well, do you have the podcast? Can you make a podcast? Can you do a thing? Can you, it, 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 it's all about like the stories are now so tiered. And we, when we had a lot of not help, but we, we did do our research in that field. We talked to people that worked for very prestigious publications and people who did this. And, and it is, it's a lifeblood thing. Like you have to make, how do you survive in a world where you have to, you know, you make, you make your news stories like financially interesting. Like it has to have a selling point to it now. It can't just be a great story. Can you talk a little bit more about that research? Cause I'm always, I'm fascinated by, by research for comedies. Well, I think Adam McKay was great in this is where like, Adam was such an interesting component of this because you know, Andrew and I were working with Owen Burke, who is the television executive over at Gary Sanchez. And we were, I think, creating it uh, based on, you know, some these interviews that we kind of done with some pundits. But when we brought in McKay, his real note to us, which I think at first was a, maybe a little bit frustrating because it was sort of like, well, wait, let's, let's make this more real. Let's, let's find out like the truth here. And he connected us to some of his people that we're in the trenches. And, and yes, and I think what we did was, to your point, we took a lot of the base of it, which is like, what is it like to be a journalist? And what are the, the uh, you know, for better, like what are the lures out there for journalists and what do they have to do and what do they have to jump through? And we took that and we tried to kind of figure out how to bring that to the forefront, not worry about some of the other uh, grander political things. We, we, we definitely inserted them, but we, we just wanted to try to keep it grounded. And I think this is our struggle. It's like trying to figure out how to, how much we wanted to acknowledge that we knew, but we wanted to buy into the reality of what these journalists life were. And I think that when we had those conversations, that's where the show opened up to me a little bit. Like, oh, okay, I get, I get this a little bit more. Yeah. And I don't normally do research on anything. And typically, you know, comedies live or die by character and like, are you invested in these people? Do you care about them? And we were really thinking of this as like a workplace that was sort of different and fun. And like Larry Sanders was one of our sort of touchstones. And like, we liked how it balanced his personal life with the workplace and that they got that workplace correct. But one of our, the blessings and curse at the time was we sold this to HBO and that we kept getting this note of like, it needs to be more premium. You know, which right. is one of those things where you're like, well, what does that mean? You know, you don't, okay, you don't like this part of the story. That's not, this character's not working. Those things I can address, but like the whole thing should be more premium. Oh, okay. It's a tricky note. I feel like I've worked at a couple places where you are getting these notes like, well, what makes it blank network? You know, and, and I never know what the answer to that is. And I think any network, I remember being in a meeting. This is my favorite meeting. I got. <laughs> Atlanta is hot. Like it is as hot as it has been. I think it won Emmys and stuff like that. And, you know, I think a lot of networks are like, oh yeah, well we would have made Atlanta. Or we would. And I remember going like, well, what kind of shows would you make? And they're like, well, we make this, we make that. I go, well, like Atlanta, like, no, we wouldn't make Atlanta. And the truth is like, like, well, that was like such a bold thing. It's like, that's not on brand for us. It's like, motherfucker, it is on brand free because if you had it, you would be psyched. Like, right. you know, that it, would it, become your brand. Exactly. Like, and you know, uh, and that's the thing. It's like, no one knows exactly what it is until it all kind of gels the right way. I think it, it, it like TV shows, people aren't tuning in because they're premium. They're not tuning in because they're tuning in ultimately. And I say this about podcasting too, about the voices that you're hearing about the characters, about the world. Is that engaging? Because you can show as many, dicks or breasts or curses. You could do whatever you want. But the truth is like, you're not tuning in to, to be titillated unless that's the specific show. Red Shoe Diaries. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like you're tuning in because you, you want to connect to these characters and you can push in that way. So I always feel like it's a weird note to be like, write to the network. It's like, no, let's write to engaging character because an engaging character in any format should work. Like the best show on NBC should work on FX, should work on, on HBO, like on some level. I mean, and I know that there you go back, well, like Big Bang Theory, nah, just bear with me. But I mean, but like, but I mean, but like, like you could have a Parks and Recreation on HBO. Like I think that, that like 30 Rock could be on HBO. Kimmy Schmidt was on NBC, then it moved. Like, they, like it's the reason why they work is not because of the content. It really is because of its quality. And you look at like a show like Breaking Bad, 
which was, you know, you know, the story goes passed on by every network. Like, that's not for us. It's not for us. And then AMC is like, well, that not only we took it, we did, you know, and whether or not they believed in it, who knows, but it's like, but now it's like now that, that branded the whole network. So it's, it is, you know, I think you always have to lead with what you creatively want to tell and the stories you want to tell it. And, and, you know, and that's, and I think we, you know, working with Adam, he allowed us to kind of find those things that make it relevant and make it socially interesting, but also, and this I think is great about Adam entertainment worthy, like, and, and that's, I think his real trick when you look at something like secession, which I know is not his show, but he was involved in like, that's why that show is so good. Like, yes, it's saying this whole thing about the Murdochs or whatever, but it also is like, Oh, but you're also, it's a, I love those characters. I want to watch those characters no matter what. I mean, did you ever get any handle on what they meant by that note? Make it more premium. I mean, was there ever a point where you made a change and like, ah, yes, so premium now. I think a lot of the times it's about the characters having a point of view that may not be an acceptable point of view, right? Or, or that you're making your characters seem a little less um, earnest or honest. Like, you know, I think that like, I think that I think sometimes like premium shows or channels will embrace you know, for lack of a better term, the Walter White or, you know, a character who's kind of a shithead as your lead, which is, I think, something that networks are always like, no, 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 no. Or you have to like your characters. You have to have a way in. But I think there's a way to have your cake and eat it, too. I remember the first meeting I ever took in L.A. I'll eliminate the network and I'll eliminate the uh, the shows. But I think you'll get the, the gist of it. We're in this guy's office. And I was pitching him an idea for a show. And he goes, let me tell you what works at this network. And there's a poster behind him of one of the shows in the network. And he goes, fucked up guy, fucked up situation. I go, okay, yeah. And he goes, and then he continues and points another poster on the wall, another show in the network. Fucked up guy, fucked up situation. Right? And I go, uh-huh. And then I, I'm saying there, and then there was another poster and this one had a few people on. He goes, fucked up guys, fucked up situations. And I go, uh-huh. All right. That's, that's the secret of success. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think that there's an element of that too. You know, you, I think you see these, I think a lot of the times premium channels are willing to take a risk in having more unlikable characters as your lead. And I think that we tried to build out a world where an unlikable character could have a different side. We, we, I think we were trying to find those things. And I think we, I think as we kind of brought Lucy more into a little less idealistic, that's what kind of, I think, opened us up in that, to answer that note, like that she wasn't purely pure. You know, she was, she was bought into some of the, the, the success of it. She starts out pure, you know, but you, even by the end, she's making a decision that isn't. And it, and was that kind of what you were thinking that there is almost a Walter White kind of journey <laughs> she's going to go on as she gets sucked in and becomes more and more one of these people. Was that sort of what you had in mind as the show was going to progress? Very much so. It was one of the things we pitched really was that like, how do you, how do you wind up being Tucker Carlson? Like, do you start as somebody who like cared about news once? Like, cause again, he's somebody who wasn't always the fucking right wing pundit either. He used to be much more moderate. He understood his role, one other, you know, in some other way. And so I think that was, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that we really enjoyed discovering and one of the things we really wanted to do in series was create this world where you have a character who is doing a big story like Adam Davidson might do, you know, for like New York Magazine and, and, and really uncovering something big. But at the same time, he's getting a lot of success for being uh, a little bit more of a, a showy pundit. And how do you how do you reconcile that? Like, how do you continue to do the job where that's your passion? You're like, and that was like, I think for us, it's going to be the, the, the fun of it. Like, again, we were, we started to play with that there. Like she's following this story that could actually have some very big ramifications in the political world, but she's getting attention and success for like the, the fluff. And, you know, like, and that, and that was going to be really fun for us to kind of, I think, go back and forth between these two worlds of like real journalists getting their hands dirty, then being this thing that, you know, you need to be, because that's actually getting you a chance to continue to do the story over here. It's like, how do you balance both sides and, and what corrupts on both sides, you know? Yeah. At what point does she sort of lose sight of 
of the, the real story and just get so caught up in like, I'm getting the likes, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting the feedback. And, and it seems like it, you can so quickly forget, okay, I'm getting, I'm, you know, if you're a Tucker Carlson, whoever it is, you're getting, you know, I, I'm getting great feedback for, for questioning the vaccines, like, or whatever it is. It's just like there's real world consequences to, to these things, but I could see it, it doesn't matter. I'm getting the ratings. I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'm getting the feedback. Yeah. One of the things we wrestled with in the beginning too is like, and I think we, there's elements of it, but I think originally Lucy's uh, partner was going to be a successful author who was getting a lot of attention. We found that that was like a little bit too similar at a certain point, but like, but the idea like Lucy was like working 10 times as hard and getting 1% of the feedback. Whereas her partner was working, you know, 10 to, you know, like one, you know, like, like, like seeing like that level of success. I feel like that's what, that to me was always a really interesting character choice too. Cause it's like, yes, we're all doing this and there's a purity and like, I want to do this. But sometimes when you work really hard on something and you don't get any acknowledgement for it, it, it can kind of create a, a bitterness. And when you finally get recognized, it's like, well, I tried it the other way. So let me go here. Why not? Why not? And I think that that was, and that to me was, I think digging into that a little bit was fun to find that with the character. That, yeah, you can be bitter when everybody else is flying by you in any profession. You know, I think that was the thing that was relatable to us. You know, like this idea of, you know, you get labeled as something and there's benefits with being labeled sometimes, you know, and, but there's deficits too. You know, it, it, it's, it's a tricky situation. I love the Bon, the, uh, the John Bovey. Uh, it's such an amazing just great run and it's so perfect do you guys remember um the genesis of that bit i thought that was all you andrew i, I was I, gonna I, say I, it was you man I uh, you, were. <laughs> uh, you, you know it, it's so funny because i think that like it was the, the best part of working with andrew who i think is such an amazing writer and his credits are so great like it was such a collaborative process uh where you know we worked on it such a long time ago but we really we really like embraced each other and let each other rewrite each other, rewrite, like deal with each other again. It's like, and it's such a rare thing, I think, to trust each other. Like I knew like whenever Andrew was like going to look at something and change something, I was like to not be defensive or not to feel like, oh, he hates me. Like I felt like there was a good energy there. So I, I when I look at that script, there are certain things when we did the read through where I was like, oh, I don't even remember that at all. Like, but I remember like, but like, you know, and I think I don't know who was what and what, how anything kind of came together, which I think is a sign of a good thing. Like, I don't think either one of us were like keeping track on a whiteboard. Like, oh, that was mine. That was yours. Got it. You know, like, but I think I know I've worked with people who are like that and that's truck. That's hard. I agree. Yeah, I've never, worst. I don't normally, <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, normally write with anybody else. And, uh, and when I have in the past, it hasn't always gone so smoothly. And the truth is Paul and I, for whatever reason, I both didn't have much ego about it and we're excited about the same things about the project. And I think really excited about each of us putting energy into it and whatever we got. I mean, like, you know, the, the truth is one of the first times I ever heard or saw Paul Shear, he was doing uh, the Dell Close Marathon with Jack McBrayer on stage. I oh was an, an assistant on 30 Rock at the time, and I was just dumbfounded with his abilities. I mean, he and McBrayer started with a word from the audience and then did a full hour out of nowhere. And it was just like <laughs> fucking crazy. So like for me, part of it was just also getting to work with somebody who, who I respected and whose sensibility was uh, so astounding and amazing was, was really fun. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, it's like this idea too. It's like, it's fun when you have somebody like Andrew who is very, very funny, but also has such a good like sense of structure. Like that's something that like, I, like I think your experience in that world allow like you know like i feel like sometimes you'll you'll be in a room like well that guy is you know that person is good with structure that person's good with jokes and andrew really is like the the swiss army knife of it all like it's like and that was fun because like that's something that i have never I, i've only been in a writer's room for shows that i've done and you know and, and there's a language there and so i think to have that point of view like of like oh we need this or we need that and it was like really helped and this script went through Gosh, I mean, I remember being on the phone with you in so many different locations, <laughs> getting different notes from different people. Like, and it was, it took a long time. I remember that 
the way it even came, I remember the first time I talked about the idea. And when I think about now, like it's a, it was a long process and we happened to finish it literally as COVID hit. I feel like we handed it in like the Monday before everything shut down on that Friday. Like it was like, it was like a weird, it was right there. And it was after like about a year, maybe of just, yeah, from inception all the way to, you know, final script. Yeah. If, if not more. Uh, but I remember like the original time that Gary Sanchez said they wanted to do it. I had just, uh, and we were at the after party for the SAG awards where VIP had won. And, uh, and that, I guess, remember that moment. I remember that was the time that Gary Sanchez like, we should do that as a show. And so that, if that gives you any idea of like where the process started, I'm sure it was, you know, like three or four years ago. So, yeah, I mean, HBO's process is sort of notoriously slow and long. Um, so I'm curious, since you brought it up, Andrew, that you're an assistant on 30 Rock, can we just sort of go back and you sort of talk about, you know, where are you from? How'd you get started as a writer? Certainly. So, um, that 30 Rock is sort of my big break moment, which I'm happy to tell you about. But like, I moved out to LA in around 2003 with a Will and Grace spec under my arm. I had applied and failed to get into the ABC fellowship, but I was like, fuck it. I want to be a TV writer. And I had worked in production assistant work doing commercials in New York. So like I got another PA job when I got to LA and sort of just started grinding and looking for other assistant work. Eventually I got a writing assistant job back in New York city where I'm from on hope and faith on the third season. Uh, these new showrunners, Hodes and Abai had taken over and were one wonderful, sweet couple who had been writer's assistants. They let me write an episode of that show. And that was its last season. And I was back in New York, not sure what my next step was. I got a call on a Thursday morning at 10 a.m. from this line producer. They were on their third day of shooting a pilot and they needed to put out script revisions, but nobody knew final draft. Like they had thought they didn't need a writer's assistant, but then they like weren't sure how to lock pages or get them to department heads and what the process was. And he had tracked me down because the world of, of, you know, sitcom production in New York City at the time was minuscule. And he found my name from somebody at Hope and Faith. And he was like, how long will it take you to get to 30 Rockefeller Center? And then an hour later, I'm sitting in one of Lorne Michaels's offices because he's got many of them sitting across from Tina Fey and Robert Carlock going over the pilot of 30 Rock. And that was sort of a game changer for me. And I got to be an assistant there the first two years. I wrote an episode in the second season got agents and then sort of got staffed off of that. That's pretty extraordinary. I mean, did you have the sense when you were working on that 30 rock pilot, um, that there was something really special? We need to talk about story blocks. Now more than ever, storytellers and content creators are challenged with producing more video content at a higher quality than ever before. Keep up with the growing demands for modern video content without sacrificing your vision with stock media. Storyblocks is dedicated to being the world's best royalty-free stock media subscription service with an ever-growing library that has over 1 million high-quality stock assets. They have an affordable subscription plan and tools, and with Storyblocks' unlimited all-access plan, you can get unlimited downloads of everything in their library. And even if you wind up not keeping it, uh, keeping your subscription, everything you've downloaded is yours to keep. And I use Storyblocks, truthfully. Um, I genuinely do. And because uh, I do like video stuff for uh, the online theater that I did last year and need to occasionally do pitch decks and stuff like that. And um, Storyblocks has been really useful in that regard. So definitely check it out. Explore their library. Subscribe today at storyblocks.com slash deadpilots. That's storyblocks.com slash dead pilots. Have you become couch potato or some other kind of couch root vegetable over these last months of lockdown? We've got the answer for you. And it's Lifespan Fitness and their under desk treadmills and exercise bikes. Lifespan Fitness is dedicated to making fitness accessible and affordable. They believe that your office should help you work and feel better. So their treadmill and bike desk are going to help you make the most of your workspace. Whether you're starting your fitness journey, you guys aren't starting your fitness journey. You maybe just took some time off from that fitness journey and you're getting back into it. If you want to stay more active at work, a lot of us still working from home. 
a treadmill desk is the answer for you. Look, it can seem like it's going to be hard to get used to. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to become second nature almost immediately. And most people walk between half a mile or two miles per hour, maybe three miles per hour. Think of how many miles you can log in a day's work. Like if you already have a standing desk or a desk that you love, you can just slip this uh, under desk bike or treadmill under that. But if you need the complete setup, Lifespan sells the desk equipment in a combo. Uh, I'm here with someone who's got firsthand experience with an underdesk treadmill from Lifespan Fitness. And that is our very own, the hero of Dead Pilot Society, the guy that makes it all happen. Our associate producer, Noah Finling. Hello, Noah. Hey, Andrew. All right. Lifespan, tell us about it. You've got, you've had this uh, underdesk treadmill for a while. Let the people know. My favorite thing about it is I could put it under any table surface. Like uh, we just have the treadmill part of it. We don't have, we didn't, we don't have the desk package as well. And that's because I, I can, you know, if I'm at my dining room table working, sometimes I like to work from there. I can slide the, the treadmill under there easily uh, by myself. I don't need any help. Um, or if I want to work in my office, I could slide it under there. It, it really fits uh, in any space. Um, it's very easy to move around. Um, it's not too heavy. Uh, it doesn't look that bad either. You know, it's not that much of an eyesore. Um, it looks good. And uh, and it's just, it's really changing my life because I can I can work, I can write while I walk. And the, and for me, as, as a writer, I write, I write best when I'm walking. So I can kill two birds with one stone. Um, yeah, I think this is such a perfect thing for the writers who listen to our show because I'm the same way. Like I, I do all my best thinking while I'm walking, but then I'm outside. I'm not near my computer. It just seems like the perfect thing to be able to walking to get that whole right brain, left brain thing going and be able to write while you're walking. That's right. That's right. It's uh, it, it's really such a good tool for the writing process for any creative process because a lot of times when you have a great idea, you're like. Oh no, uh, you know, or, uh, uh, where do I write this down? What, what do I, and now you're, you can walk and just be right in front of your desk. How many, so how many times have you fallen off and hurt, your, hurt yourself badly? Never. Never, not even once. Not even once. You I haven't mean, had a single injury. I, I mean, I have had injuries in my life, but not using, not using this treadmill. Um, I mean, I definitely am very uh, conscious about, about what I'm doing and I'm not, you know, going too fast because again, I, I do use this while I'm working. So you know, I don't really want to jog um, while I'm doing that, but I, I've yet to have an injury. And my fiance uses it too. A ton, she uses it a lot, and and she's yet to have an injury either. And it got it, how how hard was it to get used to this to working this way while you're walking on the treadmill? Um, it, it didn't. It wasn't hard either. It was pr- it was pretty seamless. Um, I just you know it was also such an easy setup. You know, it's literally like plop the plop the treadmill down, plug it in. And open your computer and start working and walking. And uh, how many steps are you getting in a day now? Um, I'm I'm for sure getting ten thousand now without fail. And and before that, I mean, I would I mean, some days I would get ten, but a lot of days I would just be getting like fifteen hundred or something. Yeah, and uh, and it's hot as hell in Los Angeles right now, so it's got to be nice to be able to get those steps in and stay inside. That's right, stay in the AC. Um, what uh, what a great product and. Um, what you got to do right now, all of you, go to lifespanfitness.com and use code DPS5 at checkout for 5% off. That's lifespanfitness.com and code DPS, as in Dead Pilot Society, DPS5. That's lifespanfitness.com, code DPS5. Go ahead. Be like Noah. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about this. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Okay. go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. I mean, did you have the sense when you were working on that 30 Rock pilot um, that there was something really special? I did, but I thought it would never get picked up. 
None of us did. Like for me, I was I was a fan of Tina Fey. I mean, Alec Baldwin, Tracy Morgan. It was fucking crazy. But, you know, that NBC had already while we were shooting that had committed to Studio 60. Right. You remember that's a year that they already picked up the Sorkin show about the same thing. And no network would ever do two shows about exactly the same thing. Uh, But they got they picked it up. And thankfully, I made enough of an impression on Tina and Robert that they hired me. The other crazy story, which you will appreciate, I think, is that Robert wasn't necessarily a part of the show. He'd come to help Tina do punch up. The other writer who had shown up to help Tina because they had written for her on SNL was Mike Schur. And so it was Tina Fey, Robert Carlock and Mike, Mike Schur doing jokes for this show. And at one point, Joanne Alfano, who was at Broadway Video, was like, we got to hire one of these guys, lock them up in case the show gets picked up. And I just imagine the alternate reality where Mike Schur had been the person to do 30 Rock with Tina. What a different show it would have been. So after 30 Rock, you know, what were the other shows after that? First real staff writing job was on a multicam called uh, Do Not Disturb with Niecy Nash and Jerry O'Connell. It took place in a hotel. It was one of the worst reviewed sitcoms in the (laughs) 10 years prior to it. And after that, because we aired three times, I was back working in a restaurant in a kitchen because I there was such a long again. I'm old enough that when you didn't when your show got canceled, you had to wait till staffing season. You had to wait till the summer to find another job. There wasn't these constant things happening. So I was back to working in a restaurant and then I got lucky again the following year where Dan Harmon hired me on community. So I worked on the first two years of that. And that sort of since then, I've been lucky enough to steadily work. And then, Paul, where did the writing start for you? I I mean, I came up at UCB very early on in UCB when they were a five floor walk up uh, above a hardware store on 17th Street. And Matt Besser was uh, very instrumental in creating uh, uh, like a way of looking at the world, right? Like he was like, look, this is our theater. You guys are our first, you know, batch of people through. You need to keep this theater afloat when we are not here. So that led to us doing seven shows a night, or sorry, seven shows a week, sometimes two shows a night. Some were improvised, some were written. And back in that day, it was, you're going to write your own show. You're going to direct your own show. You're going to act in your own show. And you're going to promote your own show. And he very much was like, you know, name your show. George Bush is a motherfucker. And then you could go out and give that flyer because it would be people would be engaged by that flyer. Right. They would do that because they don't know your name. They don't know anything. So we'd be standing out in Union Square. I remember one time we had Santa Claus. We had our friend Owen Burke, who actually is uh, Gary Sanchez, Owen Burke, uh, dressed up as Santa Claus. And we had rolls of wrapping paper and we would stand in Union Square and say, hit Santa. Uh, for free. And so people come and like hit him and then we give him a flyer. So we, we really, in many respects in the beginning of UCB, it was like, learn how to write, pitch, do every, like you learned everything. And it was, you know, like, were the shows all good? Absolutely not. Did I perform to a show where we walked the entire audience? Yep. Uh, and, and then we did shows that were completely sold out for years and years and years. And so my first kind of break was the show called Best Week Ever. A lot of people think I was on I Love the 80s. I was not on that. I was only on Best Week Ever. But, uh, and, and, and I Love the 80s, uh, or I love, I'm sorry, now I, I've sabotaged myself. Um, and Best Week Ever, what you would do is every Wednesday or Tuesday night, you get a packet, like a 30-page packet of all the events that went on in the week. And then you'd sit there and write jokes. And then you would go on camera and then you'd do those jokes. I was really writing those jokes. And that that show and that point became very, very popular. and. In that, I'm going to speed up my my story in a second. But it's interesting too because you're a pundit on that yes, show. Yes, I was. I was a pundit. I was a pundit, and I was sitting there becoming an expert on things that I never watched. I would have opinions about the OC. I never watched an episode of The Bachelor because you had to be this pop culture expert. And so a lot of the times what they would do is they would send you a clip, like here's a clip from the bachelorette and you'd watch it and you make a couple jokes about it. And people would think, Oh, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, well, I know the cliff notes of it, right? I know enough to get by. And I was cheating, you know, as we all were, that's actually a really good point. I never really thought about that. And, and we all shared the same conference room place to get ready. And that, um, then that just kind of allowed me a little bit of success, which I think was nice, uh, in New York city at that point. And that led me to doing more shows that I was doing that was headlining that people were coming to see. And Aziz Ansari, uh, Rob Hubel and I, through very long story short, we started making short films uh, together, which we wrote with Jason Wolner, uh, who was our director. And 
That was my first real gig, which was like, we made these shorts. MTV's like, would you make a pilot? We wrote that. That became two seasons of Human Giant. And that was my way in. My first real break or my first two real breaks were really based on me writing material for myself and, you know, and obviously for the group. And then um, when I got the league, one of the things about that was I said, well, I'd love to do this show, but you know, I'm coming off of my own show. I want to be able to write episodes. And Jeff and Jackie uh, were very gracious and said, yeah, you want to write? You can write. So I allowed myself to like write episodes of the league, which were very differently scripted. They're very much a curb, like they're based on big outlines and almost more complex in a way of writing a script because you have to allow for so many variables, but also put a lot of guideposts in there. And then in the middle of that, I created NTSF SDSUV, which was a, uh, like a, a 24 kind of, uh, genre show for adult swim. We did that for about 40 episodes. Um, so it's always been like a part of what I've done. Like writing has been a part of it and there's been, you know, many things that I've written that have not gone further, but, but I was lucky enough to always have that tool and not wait around. So yes, I'm an actor and I, and I often work in other people's stuff where I have no creative involvement, but I, I find such joy in all of it. Like I like getting, I like rolling up my sleeves. I like sitting and picking music. I like sitting at edits. I like having control of that production aspect. Now there's points where I'll like on a show like Black Monday, where they give us a lot of creative uh, control over our characters because I don't feel like my character does this or I want to do this. And, I want, and they're very good at helping structure and work with you. Uh, I miss it. It's fun to, it's fun to go in and just be like, I go to my trailer, I go home, I carry no weight and, and that's it. But I do miss it. And so in this time, uh, while I haven't had another, I, yeah, I've done like some other pilots and things like that that I've written, like animated things and and I've done a bunch of stuff in like digital mediums, like whether it was like the full screen platform or yeah, I forget some of the stuff that I've actually done, but, uh, but yeah, it's always a part, an active part of my career. And it's something that, uh, I just love doing. Yeah. So that's that, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's to me, it's, it's just, I feel like there's so few opportunities for people. So why not just help yourself by creating some opportunities for yourself, you know? Yeah. Were you planning on, I mean, I know you played Frank and yeah. Reed. Were you planning or, you know, on playing yeah. that role? Yeah, I liked that role. And I was trying to, at that point, like figure out what something fun to do. And, you know, it was something that was, when we we're talking about, it, I was like, oh yeah, it'd be a fun thing for me to, to get into. I mean, one of my biggest things, I think if my problem as a, as probably an actor writer is that I, I write from what I would like to see. Like people, I remember all my agents like, well, why aren't you writing yourself as Lucy? I'm like, well, no, it's a better story if it's like, like, I was like, I don't, I don't think that I'm that person. I'm like, I don't want to like, you know, like, and it was like that idea, like, well, why aren't you writing that? I was like, well, I just want to write the thing that I feel like I, I feel like, oh, I would like to do that part, you know? So I don't, I don't think of it. I think some people are, are a lot smarter than I am. And like I'm writing a show for myself. I'm doing my thing, but I also feel like that may, I don't know. I, I'd, I guess I'd rather be that way. I'd rather be the, I'd rather be the person that's trying to look at the a show that I think is better than trying to shoehorn me into the front of it. I'd rather be uh, a great part of an ensemble consistently than uh, have it all on my shoulders. Yeah, exactly. I do think, you know, being the creator showrunner star is often just an overwhelming uh, task. It, you know, better to be, you know, creator showrunner supporting player um, and not have it all riding on you. seems like a smart approach. Yeah. And it's also like that, you know, to me, it's also like if we were to get this show, like that's why I think this partnership even works better because it's like, to me, it's like, you know, this is also like, you want to partner with somebody like, I don't want to get in that situation where I feel like a lot of people create these shows for themselves. And it's like, well, then you, how can you run a show if you're not in any of the places where you can run a show? I mean, anyone who's been in production as an actor knows like, yeah, I'm, I'm on set on black Monday, like 12, 14 hours a day. Like, what, when, when do I have a chance to do any of this other stuff? You know, it's, it's hard you know, it's, it's a, it's a hard job, but I don't think people realize it until it's too late. And then all of a sudden they're bringing in somebody else. And then all of a sudden the show is like, okay, well, well you guys save it. We got to do this. We got to do this. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. And you have to be paired up with someone who hasn't been part of it from the beginning, but in this case it was presumptuous, but it seems like what made this partnership work is that you're both coming. There's an equality to status in a way that you're, you're meeting each other. Um, um, and so, you know, it is tough. You guys were fixed up by your 
by your agents. And, and that can be tricky if someone's a much more experienced writer, or, you know, if there is a status issue, but it seems like there's a lot of mutual respect, Paul, your respect for Andrew, you know, as a writer and Andrew, your respect for Paul, just not as a writer, but as an actor enabled it, you know, that you guys were able to, to make up uh, an arranged marriage work. I, I think the big part of that, and I think the ones that are the most successful is when you both have uh, a hand in the creation. Like this is our show. We might've both been talking about areas, but this is like our show. Like what, like our, like my idea and Andrew's idea are, those are just, that was the jumping off point. And I think a lot of the times when you get to this thing, it's like, well, where's the ownership? Like if you bring in somebody and Andrew probably has worked on shows where he's seen it happen too, where, you know, some I've seen it too, like where people get brought in and it's like, well, there's a fight here. It's like, well, that's not what we would do. Well, it's like, but if, you can't have that fight when you both have fully created it. Like, you know, like that's, I think that that's, I think an important thing that people don't think about a lot of the times, like, you know, and making sure that you're as a, as a writer, that you're giving that up, that it, if you are writing with a partner, it is, you have to give, you have to give over to that a little bit. It's one of the more difficult relationships I've, as I've witnessed on staffs is when a show is being run by the person who didn't sell the project or what didn't write the pilot. And, you know, the, Tina, to your point, Paul understood like that she needed somebody, Tina Fey on, on 30 rock, who was going to run the show with her. Cause she was, she had just had her first baby. She was starring in her first network show. And luckily she trusted Robert and they had an amazing, you know, comedic respect and dynamic between them. But I've been in the uncomfortable seat of a low level writer while you're watching this, show fall apart because the person who's running it doesn't respect the person who wrote the pilot or vice versa. And it is uh, tricky. And don't you think there's an element to it too, an unspoken element where the network says, Hey, we love this show, but this guy can't, can't, can't do this. So you need to come in and make it better. But no one tells the creator of the pilot that. So the pilot, like the person who is great at the pilot is like, well, I'm respecting my vision, but not knowing, like, it's like you're set up to almost have this butting of heads, you know, it's like, and that is, that's a dangerous, I mean, it's a dangerous spot to be in. I've seen friends go through it. I've not been in the room, but it, it, it that's hard. I can't, you know, it's, it's like they're, whoever is being brought in thinks that they're saving it. And whoever is running it feels like they're saving it. You're, you're having two people pulling strings in both different directions, you know? I've been in it so exactly that I'm sort of getting sweaty because I was just like, yeah, I was brought in like, can you, can you come in and, and, and save it? And like, no one tells the person that's been in that position that that's being brought in for. And it was, it's horrible. But I feel like this is the stuff that people don't always talk about too. It's like, there, there's so many things at play. Like when you see a show that is bad, right. Uh, you know, I, I, I always think like, well, there was something here. And I know of the the concessions I've had to make on certain projects. And, and sometimes there are these concessions that you make or you figure out how to make them in a way that doesn't dilute it. Sometimes you go like, well, we can fix it later. Or, you know, certain things, you know, or sometimes you live with it for so long that you forget that that thing was bad. And then you're like, then everyone's on board with, we love that thing. It's like, okay, guys, we love that. And it's very similar to, to bring it back to the show, what's going on here. It's like these concessions, these small concessions you make for success for, uh, you know, uh, for an elevated position. And if it works, then it's great. And if it doesn't, then you're like, well, look at that asshole. They fucked that up. And it's like, well, but I didn't, I didn't. They told me to add an alien character and, and a baby. Like I, I didn't ever want the alien in there. You know, how did you guys, uh, work out conflict resolution among the two of you? Do you remember? Was it ever an issue that someone, or did you really just kind of find yourselves mostly in agreement? I don't think we dug in on any, yeah. like we were, it was, it, and in some ways, oh, having Owen was really helpful. Yes. We had a really a third person who was very involved creatively. Owen Burke was so like we, at a certain point we could have a tie breaking vote on stuff if there, but it never got super rancorous or contentious when it came to any of that. You know, it, it is great to have another voice there and an executive that, you know, Owen definitely comes from a, a point of view as a writer and a performer. That's somebody that I grew up with uh, as a performer. So I think he brings something a little bit different than a lot of executives who don't have that time. Like I think a lot of executives 
uh, come from. I've was an assistant. Now I'm this. And now I, you know, and, and I've read a lot of scripts and every now and then you'll find an amazing executive, but Adam and Owen are both performers, comedians, and not to say that they are flawless, not to say they were, were always on the same page. Cause I think that's impossible, but they at least like would throw creative bombs at us in a good way. Like, okay, that like, like, you know, in, in your initial response, always, I, you know, I'm no better than this. I, you know, I bristle every time I get a note that I've, I'm like, what the fuck? No way. And then you sit with it and you talk about it. And I think Andrew and I, I think we did two things really well, which was like, when we would bristle, we could at least talk to each other and then have that out and not at each other, but we had, a, we, we kind of were in the trenches together there. And that could be from the network. It could be from our producers, whatever it was, but more importantly, we really spent time on an outline. So when we went into going to write, we had agreed upon everything. So it wasn't like the fuck are you doing here? Like, you know, like they were like, you know, we, we created a, a nice track for ourselves. So I felt like we were, we were in agreement and, you know, and then all the flourishes, I think I would read a draft from Andrew. Like, oh, I love that. You added like, I, that was a great, like, oh, that was a great spin. And, and, you know, when one of us would hit a wall, the other one would kind of take over. And that's a nice, that's also nice because this is a draining process and it's a, and, and you're just doing rewrite and you're seeing colors and you're seeing asterisks and you get in that zone. You're like, I don't know. I don't know. And to then kind of like, not to say take a week off, but I think we both at points were like, eh, and then, and then, and then you come back with fresh eyes. I think that's the thing that's, cause that's how TV is done. I, I feel like, sorry, I'm going to go on a rant and just say like, it's so weird that we base the system on, ways that you would never actually do something like, you know, it's like, Oh, well audition for this part. You're gonna have one chance. You're not gonna be with the director and they can't give you any, it's like, all right, well, that's not how things are shot and done. Like, you know, like you, like some people may not be good at that thing. And then pilots often are written in the same kind of weird vacuum where no one's really weighing in and there's no, you know, it's like, so I think anytime to give yourself, especially in television, that ability to kind of vent and leave and come back and have different eyes. If it's important, you know, I think. Do you remember much of, I think you mentioned before the read that HBO was a little bit nervous because of the timing of pandemic election, um, that just the whole space you were in felt problematic to them. Is that your main memory of sort of how this all kind of wrapped up? I believe in the end we weren't premium enough. Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like they were like this. We. It's not that we don't like the area, but like. In order for HBO to do a show about this, it has to be like at a certain level. And you're like, OK, I guess I'm just not that person because I've tried to make it. It's not like I'm, tr- I'm aiming low with the writing I'm doing. I'm really <laughs> we're pushing ourselves. We're trying to make it sophisticated and interesting and engaging and complex. But uh, yeah, I don't it wasn't the right show for them. The one thing I will say about HBO and I've now sold three or four shows to HBO, none of them went. Uh, but, uh, but my process with them is very interesting and, and, and working with them. And I can say this, the very first show I ever sold was to HBO. Um, Andrew and I just had this experience at HBO. I also just had another experience at HBO. Andrew is an incredibly established writer. We were working with Adam McKay, who arguably is an HBO darling. I had another project with Academy Award nominated writers a star who was an HBO star. And, and I sold my first show fresh off the boat, like from New York out here, maybe with best week ever to my name. That's it. Not even human giant. And my experience was exactly the same on all three of them. And I think that there is something to be taken from that in a good way that like, like, look, it doesn't matter. Like sometimes you think like, oh, if I was only X or if I only had Y, it's like the Y is whatever it is. Like, you know, I I can say that I felt confident about all three scripts at different points. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're this. It just means that in this moment or whatever they're looking for. But like, I think in my mind, and in the last couple of years, I felt like this. I really understood it. I'm like, I went out with Kevin Hart with a show. And it was a very hard show to kind of sell. And we finally sold it kind of just right under the wire at one place. But you would think like, oh, I have this piece of giant talent. It's a no brainer. And I guess nothing is a no brainer. And I think that that was something that was so fulfilling to me when we, when HBO just passed on that last show that I just did, 
I was like, oh, wow, the deck can be stacked in a million different pieces. And that was one that I was producing and not even writing. So I was involved very creatively, but it wasn't even my writing. I was like, oh, wow, I'm watching them go through the same exact note process. There's nothing different. And I think a lot of the times you think like, oh, if I was only on the other side of the door, I would see a different thing. Nope. We're all equal and you get lucky or you don't get lucky. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the script. And, and one executive might think it's perfectly premium and another may not think it's, you just don't know. There's no answer to it. And I think it's sort of like, you know, sometimes when you break up with somebody, you may not have a very concise answer. It's just it doesn't work. And that, so I don't know. I've taken a lot of refuge in that lately. I've just been like, all right, it's all the same. It's true. The project that Paul is talking about, it is baffling that it didn't get picked up. And like when you, with the, the amount of talent that was attached to it, like, and I've only listed like two of them. Like it was, it was, it was just like lying. Like it wasn't the fact that it didn't just sell in the room. It blew my mind, but yeah. You've just so eloquently kind of summed up the, the lesson of dead pilot society. Um, you know, having sat with 50, you know, over 50 writers talking about their thing, uh, their pilots that didn't go. Um, what I've really learned over the years is strategizing is both sort of irresistible and completely futile. Like it doesn't matter how much you strategize. It, it's hard to resist strategizing and trying to, but it doesn't matter because there's a randomness to this um, that overrides whatever strategic decisions you think you may have made. And I also think that there, there's life to be gotten out of things. That first show that I ever sold to HBO, like the, I, the inkling of that idea, like I've always been like, well, I think I can go back to that world. And it's not the same thing that I did, but I, I was eventually years later when I went to go back and, and sold that as a, a show, you know, like, but it like, it wasn't like, it was like, oh, I, I like this world. And it's sort of like the right time, the right people, the right place, who knows it's, uh, but it also is, I think you just have to like have confidence in yourself and, and, and feel pride in the work that you're doing. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm much more on that side now of like, I feel pride in, I love this script and all right. Yeah. It didn't go at HBO and that's fine, but I enjoyed the process. I didn't love the outcome. And I think sometimes I'm so focused on the goal, like, well, but it's not on TV. So it's a failure or I'm a failure or I wrote badly. This is not the case. It's just not the case. Yeah, um, You're happy with the part you had control over. Yes. The other I mean, part you had no control over. <laughs> I, I mean, this may be apocryphal, but I believe like the whole story with Game of Thrones was like that was in a drawer for years. Like before, like it they, they, like was risen from the ashes. It's like no one knows what they're sitting on. And then all of a sudden HBO is like, well, we are Game of Thrones. You know, it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's like Mad Men was sitting in a desk drawer too. Like, like, it's like no one knows until it's successful. Then everyone wants to take the credit for it. And that's, you know, that's the world that we live in. Were any of these actors, because it was such a great cast, were, were any of these the people you had in mind uh, when you were writing? I mean, we talked about Sashir. I think that there was something really interesting about this. And, and, and we, treated, we, we treated it like we were like, let's really try to get people we wanted to do to, to do different things. And I think that Sashir and Nicole, like that brought those characters to life in a way that I was like, Ooh, I didn't think of it like this. Like I didn't think of that, like how that tone felt, you know, and there was a lot of great performances throughout. Like I loved the, the way that Dottie was performed. I was like, Ooh, that is different. Like I, there was a lot of, and this is like part of the, the process that I'm, I'm constantly in love with, which is like, yes, you write it and that's one part of writing and then you cast it. And then that's a whole nother part because things happen and you rewrite and, and then you, and then you, you know, and then you shoot it and then you're finding new things and then you're editing it. So it's like, it's constantly evolving. And that, that I think left me the most excited about this because it's like, oh, I saw things in the show that I never saw simply by reading it out loud with some really talented actors. I felt so lucky. I mean, the fact that you guys reached out to Paul and then through Paul Mead to get to have real people read your lines, like even if, you know, that's great. Like Kate Mulgrew was amazing. Like her, Kate, I want to watch the whole show about her too. It's, it is, um, and, and we don't, you don't normally get that opportunity. So it's really, it's, it's wonderful. You guys do this podcast. I think it's, it's yeah. really fun. Um, and to speak, to even just to, to speak on that Kate thing, which was so great. Like, I don't think that we ever really pictured Kate. And then it was like, one day we were like, All right, what do we want to do? And she was like the first 
kind of name that we brought up and it was like, it almost felt like we wrote it exactly for her. Like there were like it, the character's name was Kate. Like it just was like, uh, just like that kind of alchemy too is like wonderful. Like, and I was nervous at first. Like, oh, I hope Kate will be able to like record this and do this the right way. Cause uh, you know, but she's the best and always like a hundred percent on it. But it was like seeing that come to life. I was like, Oh, I got like, I like got goosebumps. It was so, I, I love Kate. She was so the perfect person for that role that I did assume that you named the character, you know, cause I do that all the time. I'll just name a character after the actor I want to play. Just so I know that I'll have a, that person in my head as I'm writing, it makes it easier for me. She would just, I mean, she's just a powerhouse. Like she's so funny. And, and I know that people love her. I, I continue to say she's just like, she's another person who's like, use, use her more and more and more. Cause she's such a funny, funny, good person. Well, it was so great to get to read this. Um, and hear that cast. So thank you for, thank you guys for letting us yeah. do it. Well, we, we loved it. Thanks so much. There you have it. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker and our associate producer, Noah Finling. Look, if you like the show, how about leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps. Maybe uh, tell a friend about us. Maybe right now hit that share button on your phone and send this to someone who you think might be interested. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thanks for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.